All right, good morning. It seems like lately, wherever I go outside of Harvest to speak, the first three rows are like a danger zone, like a buffer. I don't know if you guys got spit on a lot growing up from the pulpit, but it's so weird. I feel like I'm extra far away from you guys. Thank you for having me back. I'm grateful to be invited back after last week. And uh, it's always iffy when I preach somewhere whether they're going to want me back. I'm grateful for the friendship that exists between our two churches. I'm really glad that we've been able to free up some of our pastors to come. And we've been praying very hard for RCC that you guys would find not just a warm body to fill a vacancy, but the exact right shepherd to help walk with this church. You guys have made heroic efforts to hold things together through a lot of stuff that's been hard. And I want you to know how honored God is by the way that your attitudes have held together and trusted in him through thick and thin. It's really, really encouraging for us to see, uh, as a fellow church, uh, how committed you guys are to being the body of Christ, no matter what happens. This is the last day of the year. It's weird that it falls on a Sunday. I think that's kind of cool. I can't think of a better place to be than in the body of Christ together as we close the books on a year that some of us are probably glad to be closing the books on. But there's always that weird feeling as you think about tomorrow starts a new year. And it's always been interesting to me that we mark years just in sequence. Like this is the year 2023. We mark that after the death of Jesus, right, and and his resurrection. And so we divide, at least in the West, we divide time by the, the person of Jesus Christ, but we just keep adding on the years. This is the 2023rd year since. But can you imagine if we marked months that way? This would be month 105,196 since Jesus' death. It'd be very, uh, you groan if you had to remember that. And there's a reason that we cyclically reset the calendar every 12 months. It's almost like human beings would go insane without a regular turning of the page. Do you know what I'm saying? Even though it's just arbitrary, like, I know some people who are so cool and jaded and cynical, they're like, whatever, New Year's, blah, blah, it's just another day. And at one level, that's absolutely true. It is just another day. Today is Sunday, it happens to be 2023, and tomorrow it's going to be 2024, but it's just Monday. It's just the next 24-hour sequence after this day, and yet it feels significant to us, doesn't it? We even have parties, and we kiss people, and we throw confetti in the air, and we shout, Happy New Year. Why do we do that? Do you ever wonder why that means so much to us? Why school years have to keep turning over, and we say, I'm now in sixth grade. Why not just say, I'm in day 3,040 of my educational process? The reason we do that is because the human mind needs a regular refreshing, a resetting of things because human hearts require hope. Human hearts require some sense of progress to note change and evolution in our lives. Every one of us needs to know that there are closing uh, of chapters and the starting and the turning of the page into a new one. And that's actually a very important theme, this idea of new beginnings. Some of the most prominent language around the Christian experience, or what it means to follow God, 
center around this idea of new beginnings. If you look at 1 Peter 1.3, we see the language of new birth. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the way that Peter describes being a Christian is that it is a new birth. You're born again. Start over. And this is not just a a makeover. It's not a remodel. It's the beginning of a whole new kind of living. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person, or other translations say a new creation. The old life is gone. The new has begun. That's a very life-giving, hope-filled verse that says that when you become a Christian, something from the old has literally been put to death, and a new thing has taken its place. I preached yesterday morning at our church about how a good metaphor for that is the metamorphosis of a caterpillar to a butterfly. I always thought a caterpillar goes into a cocoon and just sprouts wings. Because the body of a butterfly and the body of a caterpillar kind of look the same, right? They're long, skinny, hot dog-shaped insects. And so I figured all that happens is that they sprout wings. They come out, they're like, yes, I'm like me 2.0. I have wings now. That's not the case. They literally melt and dissolve into a DNA goop, a cellular soup. And then a whole new organism is formed from scratch inside that cocoon. That's a really good picture of what it means to become a Christian, is that something of the old has completely died, and in its place, a new thing has been started, a thing which is different than everything that preceded it. Isaiah 43, looking ahead to the work that God was doing in Israel and ultimately through Jesus Christ, says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Whenever this language of new things, new beginnings, new starts, occurs in Scripture, it is always in a context where God is talking to people with the intent to give them a renewed hope, a surge of vitality and positivity in the face of what life normally does to us, which is it, it beats us down, it wears us away, it makes us hopeless and in despair. How many of you know that feeling of wishing just, man, why does life seem like it's going forever, it's so slow? There, there was a, a comment uh, that Einstein is, is often uh, attributed with. He says, the theory of relativity is like this. If you hold your hand on a hot stove for two seconds, it feels like eternity, right? But if you look at a beautiful girl, two, two seconds feels like an eternity as well, right? Or I'm sorry, an eternity feels like two seconds. You can't look long enough at something beautiful. That's relativity. When life is going well... We want time to slow down. We want to preserve the moment. And when life is hard, we wish it would just speed up and be over already. The reason God has given us this language, this hope of new beginnings, is because the human heart needs regular periods of renewal. The start of a new year is a good occasion to think about how we get ourselves ready for new beginnings. Each one of us will face lots of new beginnings. We'll move, maybe we'll, we'll go to a new city, start a new job, go to a new school, start a new relationship, maybe go to a new church. 
almost every week at our church, we have someone who has left their old church to come visit our church. And you can always see that look in their eyes. It's like a, a perfect mix of anticipation and total anxiety. This is going to be awesome, I think, but maybe not. And they're just like very tentatively walking like people stepping on thin ice. Like, I got to be careful here. But they seem kind of nice, but I don't know. And, and you know, that feeling that we have, <clears throat> excuse me, we, we need to, ex- we're going to experience that all the time. We're the new guy in town. This is all new to us. We haven't been this way before. And the question set before us is, how do I get ready for that on a spiritual level? When God's about to do a new thing in my life, how do I prepare spiritually? If you're going to a new job or moving to a new city, you don't need a pastor to tell you how to prepare your household, your finances, all of that. You guys are adults. You know how to do all of that stuff. You don't need a pastor to tell you. But how do you prepare spiritually? For the beginning of new seasons in your life. And it will come again and again and again. I want to give you a few things to keep in mind whenever you face a new beginning. And the first of those things, each one of these points is going to sound really churchy and really generic, but I'll unpack them, okay? The first of those things is to focus your eyes on God. We're going to look today at a moment just before Israel entered into the promised land after 40 years of wandering through a wilderness. Can you relate to that? What seemed like an entire lifetime of wandering in the middle of nowhere, and you're like, what is this life? We're just walking in circles in a desert. Our parents have grown old and died in this place, and this promised land that we were told about ever since we were babies, when is it ever going to come? And all of a sudden, it had arrived, and the very next couple days, they were going to cross over the river into the promised land. That's a massive new beginning for an entire nation. It was early in the morning when Israel left a place called Shittim, which literally translated from Hebrew means acacia grove, and they arrived at the banks of the Jordan River. This was the boundary marker, and once they crossed the river, they would finally be in this promised land which they had heard about and had given them a source of hope ever since they were young. Their parents had talked about it since they could could remember. And here they were just on the eve of doing that. Now, God made them wait for three days on the far bank of the Jordan River before they crossed over. And that may seem a little cruel because when you finally get to the point that your entire nation has been waiting for for 40 years, you just, don't you get impatient? It's like the couple days before Christmas. I remember when I was a kid, I would always pick away at the paper to see what was in there. I couldn't wait. Why does God make us wait before amazing new things begin? Why is there always this weird period just before the thing we've been anticipating while we have to just sit there and wait for it to happen? I think as a church collectively, you guys are kind of in that place. You know that God's going to bring someone here to lead you spiritually. You know that God has provided some really good leaders. But a pastor is coming. A new season is coming for this church. You have to know that, right? You, You guys do believe it, don't you? Give me something. Don't be zombies out there. You guys know that's coming, don't you? You wouldn't still be here if you didn't believe that. It's why you held it together. God is going to do it, but why are you made to wait? And so often, the waiting period before an anticipated thing just feels like dead space. 
It's why God invented the smartphone, so that we don't ever have to endure waiting for anything. We can always fill our brains with distraction so that time just keeps passing. But that's a terrible way to spend that waiting period. The time just before an anticipated thing is full of possibility. It is one of the most important periods in our life. If you don't use it well, the next thing that you anticipated for so long will be a disaster because it will be ready, but you won't be. You will be the cloud who steps into it and messes it up because you are not prepared for the very thing you've been anticipating. I know people who've been waiting for a child forever, and it became this mythical thing that once I get a baby, everything will be... And all the while I'm going, God will bring you a child one way or the other. But let me ask you a question. Are you ready to be a mom and dad because it's not all romantic? It's not all awesome. It's a lot of hardship. You have to be ready for it emotionally and spiritually. Oh, God, if only I could find someone to share my life with, get married. That's great. It's going to happen. But are you ready for it? We just sit there and wait for the good thing to come and don't ever ask, am I at all ready when the thing that I'm waiting for finally comes? Because it will cost you. It will rock you. It will deeply affect you. And if you are not prepared... Life is not just waiting for awesome things to fall into our laps. Life is a period, a process of preparing to receive those things from God. And I'm convinced after shepherding the same church for 30 years, seeing so many life stories play out, that most of us wait for things to happen that we're absolutely not ready for when they do come. And the reason so often we make a mess of the things we've been waiting for, and we blame the thing anticipated. We're like, why did I wait so long for marriage? Just junk. Well, not necessarily, but if you're not ready for the thing you're waiting for, it will become a disaster for you. God doesn't just drop presents into our laps with a full preparation to steward them well. It takes preparation. Are you with me? I'm not yelling at you. I'm just... I'm just passionate because I've seen so many people just just staring at the phone, waiting for this thing to happen. And I'm like, what are you doing to prepare when it finally does happen? It was more than dead space. They were being made to ready themselves to finally have what their parents promised God would give them one day. In Joshua 3... Joshua begins walking through the camp, and he shouts commandments about how to prepare for what's coming. And he says, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go. Listen, since you have never been this way before. Keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. It's a very important passage of Scripture where it says, you're about to be taken into places you have never been. That means you don't know what you're doing. You don't know where to go. You have no idea how to navigate this. But don't worry, God's going to go ahead of you. Your main job is to keep your eyes fixed on God and follow. It's not my favorite way of navigating. Isn't it annoying when you're in the car with someone and you're going to a place that they know but you don't, and you're like, 
Don't forget to tell me. And they're sitting there having this whole conversation. You're like, are you going to tell me in plenty of time when I have to make my next turn? Because you're totally dependent on them for directions. I, I spoke in L.A. once years ago. I happened to rent a Mini Cooper for that trip. And I was at this church, and after the service, they were all going to go to a Korean barbecue restaurant. And the guy's like, oh, you got your own car? Fine. I know where to, where to go. Just follow me. Just stay on my tail. He also happened to have a Mini Cooper. And I guess he wanted to flex on me. So this fool started driving like a maniac. And I'm like, how am I supposed to? St-? And I had my daughter in the car with me. And she's like, Dad, don't lose him. So I'm on his tail. And this, it's like a scene out of the Italian job. This guy was trying to lose me. It was the most stressful drive I've ever had. We hit 90 miles an hour on the highway. And this guy's weaving in and out of cars. When you finally get there, I'm like, what is your problem? It's a very stressful way to navigate to some place you don't know. Because if I lost him, I'd lose lunch. Free Korean barbecue in L.A. Great prize. I lose it if I don't keep up with this guy. But that's actually the way God prefers to lead us. He doesn't give you the, the, the address ahead of time, give you the GPS coordinates, tell you just get there when you can. He says, you follow me. I know where I'm going. You have no idea. And your only job is to keep your eyes fixed on him. Now, that may be a stressful way to navigate, but it's not the first time Israel had to follow God this way. Through the entire wilderness wandering, does anyone remember how they knew where to go? Yes, cloud and fire, right? Thank you. Someone has read their Bible. Everyone knew that, right? You, you have this giant pillar of cloud and a giant pillar of fire. And in the daytime, it's a pillar of cloud. goes all the way from the ground up to the sky. And at night, it lights up. How much easier could it be to follow God? Numbers 9, 22 to 23 records this for us. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. At the Lord's command, they encamped. And at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with his command through Moses. Do we have any campers out there? Any families that do a lot of camping? Raise your hand. Okay. So usually in a, a family that does a lot of camping, there's one person who does all the work, and everyone else just enjoys the s'mores, right? You know how hard it is to make a camp. And that's with all the modern conveniences, all these pop-up spring-loaded tents and everything. Imagine what it's like for a nomadic country with all of their personal belongings being lugged around on camels and donkeys, and they have to break camp. Three million people, they have to create rows and streets and latrines, and by the time you're finished, it probably takes more than a, than, than a full day to set up that whole camp. And it says here that sometimes the cloud would just hover for two days. How would you feel? Seriously? We just got settled in. But sometimes it would linger for two months. The latrines were getting very ripe smelling. You know what I'm saying? Like, you dig a hole, you go to the bathroom. First couple of weeks, it's okay. Two months later, you're like, we got to get out of here. We've hunted the living daylights out of this section of the wilderness. There's nothing left to eat. And you can imagine that sometimes the short stays were annoying. Sometimes the long stays were annoying. But either way, the only reason Israel ever moved or stopped was in response to the movement of God. 
It wasn't logic. I'm sure at some point the people were thinking, why is God having us stay here? There's nothing for us in this region. We need to move on. And yet the the cloud just stays right there. Like, does God know what he's doing? Have you ever felt that? God, why do you still have me here? There's nothing for me. Why am I still here? Sometimes he moves you out quickly and you're like, why am I already leaving? I liked it there. Just like when you're trying to take your kids home from their friend's house. Time to go. I don't want to leave. We learn to follow God in times of change by learning to follow him in our daily lives. That was the whole way God was training them. When I move, you move. When I stop, you stop. And he was doing it in the most rudimentary way through an impossible-to-miss pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. But now as they're getting ready to finally um, fulfill the promise, to enter the promised land, he changes the navigation scheme. The idea is still the same. When I go, you go. When I stop, you stop. But now it's no longer an absolutely obvious pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Now he says, see this small box and a small group of men holding it by poles? That's what you fix your eyes on. The Ark of the Covenant was a physical symbol of the presence of God among a people. So wherever the Ark was, symbolically, God's real presence was there with the people. And that's why Israel was always in distress when the Ark of the Covenant was not with them in their capital city. The Ark of the Covenant was the presence of God in the physical world for them. Today, as Christians, we know that the presence of God with us in this physical world is Jesus, who is God with us, and his Holy Spirit, who is God in us. And the idea is still the same. Jesus, his first invitation to his disciples was what? Come, say it, follow me. You guys are allowed to talk in church. Come on now. Come, follow me. That was his first invitation. It was where I go, you go. And when we stop, we stop. Come and follow me. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 reminds us that we run this race by fixing our eyes on Jesus. This is the whole of the Christian life. You know, I welcome when we stop calling people Christians or believers because that just seems like all it is is an identity on a census form or an intellectual thing. And we started using the term Christ follower. I really like that. We're Christ followers. We're not just people who believe in something. We're people who follow someone. We worship him. We devote ourselves to him. But I know people who identify as Christ followers, and yet I'm not sure that's what they're doing. And the question, the challenge I have for myself all the time, I extend to you, is you cannot be a Christ follower unless you follow Christ. It's not a sentimental statement or a slogan. It's a description of how you live. If you want to be called a Christ follower, it's so easy. Just follow Christ. And what I mean by that is not you have to be an admirer of Christ or you have to dedicate things to Christ. I mean you have to follow Christ. And the way I often assess that is today, my life, this moment, can I arguably describe it as the result of following Jesus at every turn? Am I living where I live? Am I doing what I do? Am I buying what I buy? Am I watching what I watch? 
Because I follow Jesus, can I stand before other people as I play a, a surveillance tape of my last 24 hours and say, that is what following Jesus looks like. I know so many people who follow weather, who follow a girl, who follow money, and they, their whole lives are directed by their careers. They gave me a promotion. They reassigned me. They transferred me. So I guess we're all moving to San Diego. Let's go. Oh, it sure is cold in Chicago. Let's go where the sun is always shining. And they hope that God goes with them wherever they go. I'm not poo-pooing you if you move for work, okay? But you can't just let a company dictate where you live and where you drop your roots, where you live your life, and then say, but I followed Jesus. I think you followed AT&T. I think you followed Accenture. I think you followed... I'm sorry if you work for any of those companies. It could be prophetic coincidence or it could just be, you know... But my point is, I know so many people who say that I've dedicated my life to Christ, but really the organizing principle was where the, the son was, where the money was, where the lover was. They followed lots of things, but I'm not convinced that what they followed was Jesus. When we learn to follow Jesus in daily life, and I'm not talking about some neurotic, pharisaical way of measuring righteousness. I'm saying the heart posture is absolutely bent towards, I want this life of mine, this one shot on earth, to look like what following Jesus in the real world looks like. That's what I long for more than anything. And if that means it costs me money, or it causes a delay in a relationship, that may be the cost that I have to bear, but I want above all other things to know that I follow Jesus on this earth. And if we learn to do that in normal everyday life, then at the junction points where a major change is coming, we can trust our instincts because we have learned to follow Jesus in the mundane, and now in the new, we also know what that feels like. I can trust that I'm actually making this change, not because I'm in pain, not because I'm in need, but because God is leading me and I am following. Isn't it interesting that in the early stages when Israel was being trained in the wilderness, he used the most obvious sign. Like Even if you're out camping away from the camp, fishing and hunting, all of a sudden the pillar moves, your kids are like, Dad, it's moving, and you can still run back, get everything packed up, and follow it because it's a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud. You'd have to be blind to miss that. But now as they mature and get ready to go into the promised land, do you see what he does? The principle is the same, but the details are different. Now all of a sudden, you have to keep your eyes fixed on a small object carried by a small group of men about a 1,000 yards ahead of you, and yet God is still leading you. He's just not being as obvious as he used to be. I think a mark of spiritual maturity is that God doesn't always have to bash us over the head as, like, like Captain Obvious in order to lead us, but our hearts are so trained to follow him that even when he's being subtle, we pick up his cues. Because our eyes are trained to look for him the first thing in the day, to say, God, where are we going today? What's going on? What's happening? What are we supposed to do? Are you with me? Are you, are you guys okay? Right now, I can just tell you the whole room looks mad at me. I don't, I'm not yelling at you. I'm just really trying to encourage you to think differently about what it means to follow Jesus. I'm going to give you a second thing 
to do to train your spirit for times of change. And that is to devote yourself to God. In Joshua 3.5, Joshua says to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And he would. He was about to do something unbelievable for the rest of their lives. He said this before they made that historic crossing through the river into the promised land. And I think that many of us who were children of immigrants, not all in this room, but many of us who were, understand how, how important that moment is. Why our parents got so emotional when we graduated from university or got our first job is because this was a culmination of all their sacrifice, all their hopes, all their dreams, the thing that carried them for a lifetime. You get to enjoy. They didn't. You do. It's all for this moment. I think every parent goes through that with every child in some way. And here they were getting ready to finally experience what an entire generation had hoped for. And the, the word that, that Joshua gives them to prepare for this is consecrate. Now, I don't know if you've done much thinking about the word consecrate, but it, it's a synonym with the word sanctify or hallow. It's a word that means to set apart or devote something. And that's an idea that's very important in Scripture when it says to be holy. It's not to be just morally pure and righteous, but there's a reason for that moral purity and righteousness. It is because we are being set apart or dedicated for someone. I think the best way to understand this is through the illustration or the image of, of the common household toothbrush, okay? How many of you have one of these? Okay, please raise your hand. Oh, my Lord, that's nasty. I you don't have a toothbrush? All right, so let me talk about the, the, the humble toothbrush. It's just an object, and when you pick it up, you realize, really, anyone can use this. It doesn't have like a genetic key where it only works if the right person is holding it. Anyone can use it. When I was in college, that's, we had a communal toothbrush in my, in my apartment because guys are cheap and lazy, and everyone's just like, whatever toothbrush is there, we just all shared it. It's so nasty. But that's how college dudes live. No one cared whose it was. More I think about it, I want to puke. Thinking about how much of their bacteria I picked up because I was just too lazy to get my own toothbrush. Anyone can use my toothbrush, but that doesn't mean anyone should use my toothbrush. If you come to my house and said, hey, you know what? This is a lovely home. And by the way, when I was in the bathroom, I just use your toothbrush to brush my teeth. I hope it's cool. And you're like, no. It's not cool. You don't just go to someone's house and use their toothbrush. Why? It worked. Of course it works, but it's mine. It's not yours. It's sacred to me. No one else should use it, even though everyone else could use it, because it only belongs to me. And what is more, if you pick up a toothbrush, you realize it doesn't only have usefulness for washing teeth. I use old toothbrushes to clean that, that small crevice between the faucet and its handle. Uh, you could use a toothbrush to wash all kinds of body parts. You know, just you know, space between your nails, between your toes. Think how great a toothbrush is for cleaning between your toes. So you can use a toothbrush for just about anything, but it's not 
used for all that. It's devoted for one purpose and for one owner. Do you see what I'm, I'm saying here? That's what makes a toothbrush holy or sacred. It's consecrated to you for one person's use and for one purpose. That's what holiness in Scripture always refers to. It's not a, a word that describes moral perfection. That's part of it is cleanness. You want your toothbrush to be clean, but why do you want it to be clean? The real why is because it belongs to me for a very sacred purpose, and it needs to be clean for that purpose. You take away the purpose and the owner, it doesn't matter how clean. Walmart is full of pristine toothbrushes, perfectly holy toothbrushes that no one cares about. Your toothbrush has to be clean for a reason, and the reason has everything to do with belonging to you and belonging to one purpose. We have thought the wrong way about holiness and sanctity for so long in the church. It's turned so many people away from God because we only focus on the clean part. And we forget that, that holiness, consecration, is primarily a word of belonging and purpose, not of moral perfection. You take away the belonging aspect and consecration loses all meaning. We are consecrated and holy to the Lord. When he purchases us, we belong wholly to him, fully. We are his, devoted only to him, not to be shared to give ourselves away to any other God, any other ruling principle, any other belief system or value set. He is the one to whom we have consecrated ourselves. And the question at every point of change is this, are you sure you fully belong to God as you're making this change? As you turn the page and close this old chapter and open up the new one, are you sure that you belong fully to God? That's an important question for all of us to ask at the beginning of every new change. I don't know that you could ever fully belong to God, okay? I mean, let's be honest about what life in this broken world is like. We'll never get perfection there, but it's a question that energizes and informs how we live. Do you belong? To God? Are you devoted to God only and to His purposes the way your toothbrush is holy to you? See, He was about to do amazing things among the people. And amazing things have a way of either pulling our hearts closer to God or pulling our hearts away from God. I've seen some people lose their faith when God did the thing that they hoped more than anything would happen. When they finally got the job or got into the school or got the person they were pursuing, they thought that would be the culmination of everything. And that's when their hearts began to pull away because it turned out they wanted that thing more than they wanted God. And when God finally gave them what they really wanted, they didn't need God anymore. Every change we hope brings with it a new season of prosperity, of blessing. But those blessings can pull you away from God if you don't enter them with this kind of surety in your heart that I have settled the question to whom I belong. I belong to God. And this earthly life, this precious short run on this earth is devoted to him. We don't do this as a form of exchange. I don't devote myself to God so that he will give me things. I devote myself to God because I worship him. I acknowledge that he has done for me what is worthy 
of this devotion. I'm seeing a lot of very uh, provocative things here, and a lot of this has to be unpacked more in your life. The, the danger of preaching is that I'm talking to a room full of a hundred different stories and a hundred different sensitivities. Preaching is not only to you, okay? I'm preaching to a whole room, but the Holy Spirit might be saying stuff to you that you got to unpack with somebody. So please be aware of that, because I, I wasn't thinking about your individual life when I wrote the sermon. And even if you happen to work at Accenture and you just moved here from another city, it, I wasn't preaching just to you, but I think that in the course of hearing a sermon, different people are hit at different points, and God is saying to you in that disturbance, pay attention to this. There's a reason you're bothered. There's a reason you're feeling bad or you're feeling angry or you're feeling something, longing, emptiness, and unpack that after the sermon with people you trust. Don't just leave the sermon to stand on its own because that's not the purpose of a message. Just so we're not here into the new year, let me just give you a last thing, okay? <laughs> Sorry I'm going so long. Are you guys okay? About five, five, ten more minutes? Last thing to keep in mind when you're entering into a new beginning. We already said, first, focus your eyes on God and then devote yourself to God. Finally, when you're looking at a new beginning, remember to look back and remember God's faithfulness in the past. Someone once told me that we, we don't see God very clearly in the future, but we do see him very clearly in the past. In Joshua 3, 15 to 16, here's what happens next. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. The priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Does that sound familiar at all? Isn't it interesting that the way they exit the wilderness is identical to the way they enter the wilderness? I'm sure they heard all the stories. You would not believe it. There was a wall of water on either side of us, an entire sea stacked up as high as a skyscraper. I saw octopuses and, and sharks swimming around. It was crazy. It was like an aquarium of your wildest imagination. And we just walked through the seabed on dry ground. It was a miracle. And I'm sure the kids are like, oh, here's Grandpa again talking about the whole crossing of the Red Sea. We heard it a thousand times. But even as you hear the story a thousand times, don't you kind of want to live it yourself at least once? I, I would be in seminary, and these visiting preachers and missionaries would always tell these stories about how, you know, I was down to my last crumb of bread, and then all of a sudden in the mail, someone sent me $320. That's exactly what I needed for my rent and my grocery bill. It was a miracle. And I'm like, such a blessing to hear, but I'm sick of those stories because it never happens to me. I remember feeling that, and the following week, someone sent me cash in a card exactly equal to my tuition bill. I was like, oh, it's kind of cool when the thing you hear about, which makes you wish, and it happens to you. 
And once it happens to you, it forges a deep groove in your brain because God has now done something in you. He said, do you see that I am real? I'm not an idea. I am a being in your flesh and blood universe. In this reality you dwell in, I have touched your life. I've done something you cannot explain by other means. I have shown my face to you, and you will never forget it when God acts in your life. It doesn't have to be a supernatural miracle. It just has to be such a clear expression of the presence and goodness of God in your life that you cannot ascribe it to anyone else, and you know that God has touched you. If you've never had such an experience, I plead with you to ask God to do that in your life. Because you will not hold a lifetime of faith together on believing ideas. You can't. You have to encounter the living God at some point in a way that's real. You can't just know God up here. You have to experience God in this reality in which you live every day. If he doesn't break through the pages of the Bible into your actual existence, you will only fake it after a point because you're not absolutely convinced that the God you read about in the pages of a book is actually a being present in this universe. Beg God for such experiences that, that show God to you in such a powerful, real way. You're like, this is no longer a question of belief. It's a question of remembering. Those are the most powerful beliefs. They're not the things you've been taught to believe, but the things you can never forget. They are real experiences that you remember, and they forge the foundation of your convictions, your deepest held beliefs. See, this present generation never witnessed the parting of the Red Sea. They heard about it. But there's a reason God is allowing them to exit the wilderness and have their own new beginning by the same miraculous means. What he's saying is the God that your grandpappy and your daddy told you about, I'm the same God and I'm here with you. The God of yesterday didn't retire and get replaced by God 2.0 who's lame and weak. The same God who led your parents into the wilderness is the God leading you out. It's a way of strengthening people who are facing change because, like I said in the beginning, every new season brings with it both anticipation and anxiety, right? Please let this be awesome, but what if it's not? Please let this be great, but what if it's not? Do you know how scary it is to get down on one knee and ask one human being to spend the rest of your earthly existence with you? And you're like, I hope she says yes, but oh my gosh, what if she says yes? One person till death do us part. And at the same moment, you're like, that's awesome and terrifying. Because what if? And what God is saying to these people and what he's saying to us is, when you're feeling that anxiety about the unknown future, look back and say, the same God who got me this far is still with me. And he's still going to be ahead of me. And I'm going to face a lot of things I can't control and a lot of things I can't handle. But the same God who got me this far will be with me. RCC, do you have any idea how powerfully God has shown himself to this church? When you think about everything you've been through as a church, it is a miracle that we're all together in this room. Can we just name it? I'm not a delicate person, okay? I just, I, I, I like awkwardness. So let's just go there. It's a miracle that this church has held together through everything. And that's the miracle of the power of God. He has been showing you what he can do. 
even without pastors. Pastors are overrated. We're important, but we're not all important. The body of Christ is you, and you have been held together by a God who has shown so much power, so much commitment to this church. I have no idea what your next pastor is going to be like. It might be terrible. It might be awesome. I don't know. But I know who will still be with you. The same God who got RCC this far is still right here. And he's still in the days ahead, no matter who else stands behind this podium and speaks. That's why we have confidence to face an unknown future and enter seasons of change, because the God who led us is still with us. I'm 56 now, and I'm nowhere done with new beginnings. We just left a home that I loved with all my heart. I literally cried as I turned the lights off for the last time and closed the garage door. I raised my kids there, and I love that house. I had so much space, three-car garage. I had 30 acres in the backyard that I didn't have to maintain. The park district maintained it for me. It was like living in the countryside, deer, coyotes running around. Big old house. We just moved to a two-bedroom townhouse in a soulless subdivision development. My neighbor's house looks exactly like my house. We can't shop at Costco anymore because there's no room to buy anything in bulk. And I'm still reeling from the change. I'm not used to it. I struggle daily with this change. My first child, my second child, but my first one to get married, just got married this past summer. And now I'm a father-in-law. Soon I'm going to be a granddad. So many new beginnings. I'm 56. You think I'll be done with changes. So many still lie ahead. We are never done with new beginnings. And one day you'll, find, you'll face your final new beginning, the preparation to leave this world. That's a whole new, ultimate new beginning. How will you face this unending string of new seasons in your life? I don't know how you do it financially, emotionally, physically, professionally, but I know how we can do it spiritually. Walk every day fixing your eyes on following Christ who leads us. Make sure you settle the question daily in your heart, to whom do I belong? To whom am I set apart for? And when you're uncertain about what lies ahead, look back and find God in the stories of your past, how often he's shown up in faithfulness so that you could be here today. If you face your new beginnings that way, I can't say much for the professional and financial and physical, but I can tell you your soul will be well. I'm excited for what lies ahead for RCC. We at Harvest are praying for you guys all the time. We're praying that God would do something miraculous at this church because this church is needed in this part of Chicagoland. Please hold it together, trust God, because we need you to flourish. Amen. I'm excited for what lies ahead. Prepare yourselves spiritually. A new day is coming. Let's pray together.
Lord, as we close out this year, it's not hard to see the many troubles we're leaving behind. And yet what we choose to see is how faithful you have been in bringing us through every one of them. We're not out of the woods yet, and yet we are standing today because you have held us up. And so we pause today just to honor you. Even as we know that the past year has been hard, you have also been good in the past year. Better to us than we deserve. And so we just pause to say thank you, God, for being a good and faithful God to us. We ask that you would teach us every day to fix our eyes on you, to follow you where you lead, and to refuse to go anywhere following anything or anyone other than the God who has saved us. We pray also, Lord, that you would call each one in this room, each of us, to belong to you, to be devoted to you, set apart, holy unto the Lord. We know that you're going to do some great things at this church. And perhaps we won't even have to wait very long to see that happen. So prepare us spiritually for what is to come. We pray in Jesus' name.